a real entrepreneur helping others succeed. This is your host, Rivers Corbett, on the Startup Canada podcast. Welcome to the Startup Canada podcast, a show serving Canada's entrepreneurship community. On this show, we connect you with the most innovative and entrepreneurial movers, shakers, and change makers across Canada. With day in the life stories and in their shoes experiences, we dive into the true grit of running startup and scale up companies and those driving the entrepreneurial movement. The Startup Canada podcast show is a production of Startup Canada, the national rallying community for Canada's 2.3 million entrepreneurs. If you are a regular show listener, welcome back. If you're new to the program, hey, don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes and Google Play Music and visit startupcan.ca to connect with both your local startup community and to join Startup Canada to access training, resources, and a peer network to grow your success. I'm Rivers Corbett and entrepreneurship is part of my DNA. Whether it's building my own companies or helping other entrepreneurs build theirs, this is my lane. Want to connect after the podcast? You can find me at www.meetrivers.com. Okay, East Coast to the West Coast. I love this country. It is so cool. Entrepreneurs all over the place, loving, appreciating each other from coast to coast and being driven by the great stuff that the guys from Startup Canada are doing. Um, you know, this guy we're going to bring on to the show today, Keith Ipple, he's a change maker and a serial entrepreneur and most notable as the co-founder and CEO of Spring Activator, a Vancouver-based accelerator and incubator, often referred to as startup school. I love it. Probably have probably the one school that there's a lot of demand to go into. Very cool. Spring has helped more than 200 entrepreneurs realize their ideas and grow their companies. Keith is an entrepreneur driven by by purchase who is uh, purpose <laughs> and purchase because he has raised over two twenty million dollars in angel and VC funding. Passionate about helping entrepreneurs change the world, Keith finds inspiration in discovering the finest startups the Vancouver community has to offer. He's an avid supporter of social entrepreneurism and wishes to, the, to turn the world into a more positive and unified place. Absolutely awesome. When he isn't changing the lives of entrepreneurs at Spring, Keith advises at Get This, Hootsuite, Bright Kick, Kit, and Momentum, just to name a few. In today's podcast, we're going to talk to Keith about his strategy to raise nearly $2 million in funding. Here are some important lessons he's learned during his 15 years in business, and I'm sure a lot of stuff in between. Welcome to the show, Keith. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great stuff. Well, let's kind of dive right into it, my friend. And, uh, you know, I, 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 my, the, the listeners already know this. We did a little bit of a pivot uh, on these shows lately. And, and we want people to know what they're going to get from this conversation. Don't want any surprises. So we want them to, to know what do you want them to take away from the today's conversation we're going to have, Keith? Yeah, thanks uh, for asking, Rivers. And, you know, for me, entrepreneurship is not rocket science. And it's possible, I think, for many people out there to do it with the right commitment, hustle, inquisitiveness, and a strong why. And really what I'd love for them to take away from today is is just how possible it is. And not just entrepreneurship in general, but also funding, which mm. can be a, you know, a, a big, scary, hairy topic. Uh, but it's something that uh, actually is, is not as bad as people think it is. 
Yeah, that's very interesting because it's it really is a go to uh, a go to issue. It's the common the, the common primary uh, issue that people want to deal with, and uh, I love that uh, we're going to talk about how you can kind of break that apart and take the big scary monster into the bed and uh, bring it out to be the teddy bear, which I know you're going to show us as to how it is. So uh, yeah, so you're a social entrepreneur, and uh, which is you know I just love that uh, the momentum that social entrepreneurship is taking. Can you tell us about the defining moment of inspiration that made you realize you wanted to make the world a better place? Yeah, thanks for asking. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, one thing that I've learned over time is that I think we as humanity, we're all hardwired to want to make the world a better place. We're all hardwired to try and leave the world better than the way that we found it. And so for me, the defining moment was actually when I was running a, a software company in 2009. And you know, really coming to that realization that time is the only perishable resource and that if I really wanted to change the world, um, that I needed to get on it. And in particular, Mm. break that mold from being uh, an entrepreneur from nine to five or from nine to seven, you know, Mm -hmm. and then being a philanthropist from 7 p.m. to 10 p.m. And and so for me, going to an event uh, one evening, uh, was that defining moment for me where I said, why am I doing this at 7 PM? Why am I not doing this all day, every day while right. I do my work and while I do life and, and finding that balance. And so was it a, uh, was it a conversation you were having? Were you, uh, standing under a light when it happened? Uh, can I, <laughs> it was yeah, the event. Was, <laughs> it was a bolt of lightning and an angel. And, uh, yeah. I you knew know, it. Exactly. I, you know what I love is, is that's, that's honest, man. Everybody else kind of gets into this deep kind of, oh, I had this deep conversation. No, it was a bolt is what yeah, did it. Exactly. <laughs> you know, I honestly, what it was is, uh, went to an event, which, uh, was an event uh, where it was a nonprofit talking about um, how they were going to change the world as a nonprofit. Right. And I remember looking at them and saying, you know what, there's probably, you know, 1500 times more the number of for-profit organizations as there are nonprofits and charities. Mm-hmm. And if we put the power of for-profit yes. into just making the world a better place, that's how we're going to change the world. And yeah. that was that light bulb moment, right? Cool. Yeah. You, you know, it's interesting to talk about the nonprofit. I absolutely think that is one of the worst words in the entire world, nonprofit, because it gives people an excuse. It gives them a crutch to act differently, be differently, not be innovative, uh, not be bold, and um, and uh, and to, to really turn into a beggar strategy. And I say that with great respect because there's a lot of good organizations that are out there, but they just lead with that nonprofit kind of mantra, and it just is like a wet rag of over your head. So yeah. I'm so glad you know, well, that you, and you know, that. It's interesting, right? So what I'll share with you is, and, and I think this is for all entrepreneurs, right? The mm-hmm. notion of a nonprofit is a byproduct of a bygone era. Mm. When people did capitalism with no moral compass. Right. And, right. and that right. era is gone. Right. right. Especially with, you know, millennials as a purpose generation. Mm-hmm. Um, and we see it manifested in things like Whole Foods, Tesla, Volvo, just announcing that all their cars as of 2019 will be all electric. Um, you know, we're in this place now where, you know, making the world a better place is just going to be the norm. So I think what will happen is the notion of a nonprofit will actually disappear. 
And what will remain is for profits, many of which, and hopefully ultimately all of which are purpose driven while being for profit and charities, which must exist to do certain things where there is no monetary compensation. Right. right? And so, so that's everything from disaster response to other things. And so, so I think for me that that's so exciting. Yeah. That's exciting, man. I love it. Yes. Yes. So, yeah. And I love the reinforcement of it. I think that, uh, you know, we, we talk about uh, uh, women entrepreneurs and so on, how that dialogue is changing for all the right reasons. And, uh, and the same thing with regards to, this nonprofit dialogue. I love it. I wish I'd take a couple of nuggets obviously away from every conversation and dude, you already hit the first one for me five yeah. minutes in. So Great. thank you for that. So after raising over 20 million in angel and VC funding, what, what uh, has been the, the biggest learning moment? And, you know, what do you tell entrepreneurs who are looking to raise large amounts of money? Yeah, let's just forget about large, medium, or small. Just what's the, what's the, you're going to dummy it down. Um, break it all apart so it isn't scary. Tell yeah, us how so, to do that. Yeah, great question. So, um, uh, as an aside, actually, just uh, had an article posted in uh, issue number six of Rank and File magazine, uh, which cool. you can check out online, rankandfilemag.com. And nice. uh, and so within that, there is this what I'm going to call Maslow's hierarchy of fundraising. Okay. And so, cool. at the most basic level, when people are looking at fundraising, they're saying, Hey, give me the tips and tricks. Right. And so that's the starting point. Like I need to raise cash. And so there's a couple of hallmarks, right? You can't raise cash. If you have less than 12 weeks of capital yourself, you need to come from a place of abundance. The second thing is that raising money is a process. It's not voodoo. It is a sales process. It's a business development process. If you run it like a process, you can be successful in raising money. The next thing that I would say is um, um, investment has no borders. You know, the most successful entrepreneurs uh, that I have seen, including people like Ryan Holmes uh, or uh, with Hootsuite or Annalia yes. with Social Nature or Catherine uh, Lowen from Control, these people are fearless about going cross borders either into other provinces or into the United States or into other parts of the world to go raise the money that they they want. Um, but so then I'm going to stop you there for if I could yeah, for yeah, just please. a second because I think this is important because you're right they are scared. It's it's uh, I mean I see that in our region it's, it's scared to go to Boston for goodness sakes and and so one what do you think is the reason that they're reluctant scared whatever and uh, two uh, you know how do you suggest that they uh, that they get past that yeah so good question um a couple of reasons why they're scared um first is because uh most people who are raising money are raising money for the first time they actually mm-hmm. don't know how to do it mm-hmm. right it's kind of like you know trying to sell something for the first time it's trying to um uh, build a minimum viable product for the first time, or it's, you know, launching your first product formulation for the first time, you don't know how to do it. Um, but the reason that people are afraid of that versus like picking up the phone and trying to sell to someone or trying to create, get a right formulation. The reason they're, they're so much more afraid is because they feel that there's this massive imbalance of power because somebody else can write a check for 25 grand or 250 grand and they can't. Ah, and that is a myth. And the reason mm-hmm. is because the person who has a hundred thousand dollar check 
can't make more money unless they invest in good companies. They need us as much yes. as we need them. Nice. Right. And, and so, so the reality is, is that you have to come from this place of abundance that, you know, you are a great entrepreneur, you have a great idea, you've got good traction, you're bringing a lot of value to the table and it's a relationship. And that's when we kind of stack up Maslow's hierarchy of funding, which is at the top of this thing, investors are actually partners. They don't mm -hmm. write checks. The last thing you want from an investor is their check. What you really want from them is industry experience, business model experience, a network of investors, a network of partners, a network of talent that you can act on, people that you can trust and that you can, you know, be authentic with as you go through, you know, the ups and downs of entrepreneurship. If you focus right. on those things, that's a relationship. Relationship is inherently based on equality, right? Mm -hmm. And then mm -hmm. you don't, you're not afraid anymore. You're actually saying, you know what, this is what I'm looking for. I need, like, I want this, but if you can't bring me those things, I don't need your money that bad. Mm, mm. Do you, have you written an article on this? Uh, yeah. So there was a, like I say, there's a piece uh, that just came out on uh, rankandfilemag.com. And, uh, and so I, I talk about uh, some of these pieces and then right. here in Vancouver, we also actually run a funding workshop uh, specifically for entrepreneurs, because sometimes you just need to go through the workout and, yeah. and kind of yeah. talk it out. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's so. right. The workout. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Well, so we've alluded to a little bit about the funding, um, um, uh, uh, issue of fear and so on that that's related to going, uh, to other parts of the world, uh, to do your business. Um, last year with the acquisition of kick incubator spring was able to, uh, to tap into investors, entrepreneurs and resources in around 30 different cities worldwide, which is so cool. I want to learn more about that. But so, but before we get into that, are there anything, is there anything else that's fear-based that doesn't need to be as it relates to startups going global? Uh, wow. That's actually a fantastic question. Fear-based. I think fear-based of course is in this particular case is fear of the unknown and fear yes. that you're going to overextend yes. yourself. And so, um, you know, as it is with funding, creating an, uh, a great plan uh, is is important. And then the other one is actually to recognize it for the opportunity that it is. It means you get to do customer discovery in places like the yes. United States, in Serbia, in Vietnam, wherever that growth opportunity is. And when you reach out to, to customers or prospective customers in other markets, you'll learn more about what they need, about what the pain points are, about what the priorities are and how you can solve them in unique ways than you yes. would ever do if you just stay stuck to your local market. Yeah. Do you find that people uh, make the assumption in your experience and any working with the over 200 that you have um, and et cetera, et cetera, that they make the assumption that, well, they're like Canada. I'm in Canada. Therefore, everybody else is like Canada. Is that a common mistake or becoming less and less these days? Um, you know, to be fair, I think it's becoming less and less. Mm -hmm. I think what is also becoming less and less is there, there was a long time where people would say, you know, Canadians are Canadian. We tend to be conservative. And so the premise was, you know, I'm launching in Vancouver. I'll grow in Vancouver. Then I'll go to Vancouver Island. Then I'll go to Alberta or I'm starting in Nova Scotia. Then maybe I'll move to New Brunswick. Then I'll think about going elsewhere like that conservatism. Yes. Even that is breaking down very quickly. You know, there's a there's a company that I know in Vancouver. It's called This Fish. 
and uh, it's a it's a fishery uh, management system from the boat all the way to the consumer uh, to actually do traceability and know where the fish are coming from and and uh, and their first customers in Thailand. Really? And, and that's, you know, and why not? Because in that case, that's actually their ideal customer. So I think we're seeing a lot more of that. I think where I would say people run the risk is that they don't do the customer discovery. Yes. That they kind yes. of say, yeah, it might be different, but they actually don't go and find out why and how. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and is and you know, I find that so amazing because you know I I really break down business as simply a freaking dating game. That's all it is. You know, I'm chasing the girl. I want to know as much as I can about her so that she's going to date me and want to date me again and again. Presuming it's a good situation in the beginning. But when it comes to business, for some reason, we just kind of throw that out and we don't get into this customer discovery because we all of a sudden now have to make it all about us and our assumptions. It just blows me away. Well, and here. Here's the interesting thing. If we use the dating analogy, I'm actually going to ex- extend that and actually say, I think the analogy, it's a little bit possibly closer to when you have a baby. Yeah. And, and the reason is, is because when we date, we're kind of naturally saying, you know what, I hope it works out. But if we're not a fit, then let's move on. Yeah. When people put their startup out there. What they're actually saying is it's like pushing the baby carriage down the sidewalk and you want everybody to look at your baby and say, this is the most beautiful baby in the world. (laughs) And then you're offended when they say it's ugly. And so, so, so what we need to do is kind of get over that because most of the time when people go out there, they, they, they want everybody to love their baby. And that is not true. We don't want everybody to love our baby. We want our ideal customer to love our baby and everybody else to say no fast. So we don't waste our time. Yeah, right. yeah. 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 And, 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 and by the way, there are a lot of ugly babies out there too. And you need to understand that. <laughs> <laughs> so true. I love it. So I want to, I want to learn about spring. It wasn't in the, uh, the script, but that's uh, one thing that's great. When you're the host, you get to do exactly what you want to do when you're recording these things. So can you, can you tell us about that journey with, uh, with spring? And I mean, there's a lot of activators, accelerators and incubators and, and so on. And, and it's all great stuff. Don't get me wrong, but I, I want to hear about your specialness, your your uh, gift to the world with what you guys are doing at Spring. Yeah, thanks for asking. Uh, you know, and you and I can relate to this. Um, but you know, when I first started my entrepreneur journey, accelerators did not exist, incubators yes. did not exist. I would have killed to have the type of ecosystem right support that mm-hmm. exists today. Like Startup Canada is a perfect example, right? You yes, know, where they're, yes. where they're stitching together communities, large and small across the country. Like it just didn't exist. So we all had to kind of make it up all over again, recreate the wheel every single time. And so, but that said, to your point, the notion of an incubator or an accelerator is a product of 2005. Right. Y Combinator, Techstars, 500 startups, right? That's that's the genesis of what we will call the modern incubator and accelerator. And if we look at most industries, there is a natural cycle of disruption and innovation that occurs every seven to 15 years. Mm-hmm. So we are in the sweet spot of disruption and innovation mm-hmm. for startup ecosystem. And what we have learned over time at Spring and, and certainly through our previous experience as a team is what entrepreneurs really need is they need help when they need it for the help that they specifically need at that point in time. Yes. So, yes. so the notion of a program 
whether it is pre-incubator, incubator, accelerator, uh, funding workshop, anything in between, the notion of a program is relevant at certain points in time, but it is not relevant most of the time. Mm-hmm. If I'm doing a great tech company mm-hmm. that is not venture scale, I'm essentially excluded from all of that. So yes. how do I get help? And yes. so with Spring, what we have said is we are bringing the same tenants of incubation and acceleration, business model canvas, customer discovery, um, launch planning, uh, lean methodology, uh, bringing all of those core components to the table. But what we're saying is, is how can we help you get access to anything that you need at any point in time? Mm-hmm. And the real layer on top of that is the separation between education and wisdom. Right. So education is almost fully commoditized already. You can learn anything online Mm -hmm. fast in usually in six minutes or less. And so, but the challenge is, is where's the wisdom, right? So it's one thing to watch uh, like a Ted talk or a Udemy course or something like that. But it's another thing to go now, tell me what I don't know. Tell Mm. me where the blind spots are. How, what are the rookie mistakes I'm going to make and how do I avoid them? And, and so for us, what we're trying to do at spring through our programs and through our um, mentorship models and our uh, masterminds and our membership is we're actually creating a network by which you as an entrepreneur can ask for help anytime. And sometimes that's a quick question. Sometimes that's being in a community is really having real-time access to the right people, real-time access to the right content and, and learning. Um, and then sure, tap into a program if and when you need it. And so that's a, a key differentiator. Now, underpinning all of that, we sit at the intersection of impact and tech, right? Uh, yeah. As I said, everybody's hardwired to change the world for the better. Yeah. Every company is technology enabled. And right. so, but we're the only ones that allow people to say, this is my tribe. Uh. Very cool. How do you make money? Uh, we make money through a couple of methods. Um, first, we charge people for what we do. And the reason we charge is because people need to have skin in the game. That's just human psychology. Yeah. No However, hesitation whatsoever to charge. I love it. Yeah. and But at the same time, we do acknowledge that entrepreneurs, like money is tight often as entrepreneurs. So we do run a subsidized model and our subsidized model is enabled through some fantastic sponsor nice. uh, partners that we have. So people like uh, Smite CPA or uh, Denton's LLP and Futurepreneur and, and some amazing entrepreneur support organizations out there. And then uh, the other way that we do it, uh, to be honest, is now that we've been working in 30 cities around the world is we actually do some ecosystem consulting. So we actually go into other communities around the world and help them shape and define what it will mean to have a, an entrepreneurial ecosystem, what it will mean to have a tech ecosystem, what it will mean to have an impact ecosystem, what it means to set up an incubation acceleration program. And so, <laughs> so it. we've done that uh, around the world um, yeah. and continue to do so. That's um, very interesting. There's a, uh, a, 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 you've heard of community futures organizations. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah so in, in the, on the East coast, it's, 
it's called CBDCs and uh, it's the, the acronym. And uh, anyway, make a long story short, there's a, the most pop, the most popular, the most sorry, successful um, uh, CBDC. And this reflects exactly what you're doing in identifying other revenue sources that have to do with your expertise, your talent to continue to create uh, uh, growth for you, but also revenue for you. Anyway, the small little organization in, in a town of like 8,000 people creates millions of dollars in revenue because it does exactly that. It moves out of its traditional model of being just a funder, but it becomes an expert in the field to help um, other projects to do consultation in other areas of which they have the expertise in doing. So I just love that you're they're doing that. And of course, I love the fact you're doing it in 30 countries around the world. Just uh, yeah. really, really, really epic stuff. Well, and the so, other thing that I would say to that front yes. is, and this is an encouragement for all entrepreneurs is, you know, us doing it in 30 cities around the world, I'm learning something new every day, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So the example I like to give is there's a company in Belgrade, Serbia, female yes. founder is called Kobayagi toys. They make toys for kids. Yes. Um, it's also a job training, job creation program for youth where they have a 55% youth unemployment rate. So in the first year, based on her customer discovery and getting her company started first time entrepreneur, she sold 80,000 euros worth of toys just in the city of Belgrade. <laughs> and she hustled and she moved and she knew more about social marketing and offline activation and pricing models than I've seen a lot of people do in their first year in business. And so we nice. learn a ton by doing that. And that's why I love entrepreneurs who get out there and talk to other markets and talk to other customers and really push the boundaries, right? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. What a great lesson. Get out and learn. It's just not about doing, it's about learning. Very yeah. cool. Yeah. So, um, what skills did you learn in your early years uh, in the tech industry? Because, you know, tech's the sexy thing, right? It's the it's the thing that everybody wants to chase around. And then you sit back and you say, I'm a tech entrepreneur and uh, stuff's supposed to be really easy to you, for you. But I want to break through that, <laughs> that fallacy. And I want you to say, it's not easy, tech guys and girls, because you need to understand this. So can you explain to me what this would be? Yeah, I, you know, <laughs> great question. Um, yeah, I, I didn't lose all my hair for a reason, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, and so, uh, you know, what did I learn? Um, you know, what I learned is, is I think not business skills. I learned life skills. I learned uh, to ask a ton of questions. Right. I learned to be humble. Um, I learned to adapt. I learned to move with velocity. Um, and, and those are, you know, those are the underpinnings of great entrepreneurship. Um, what I learned over time was the power of relationships and the fact that we as founders and CEOs are not alone. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the mm-hmm. myth of entrepreneurship mm-hmm. is you're the CEO. You can't talk to anybody. Um, you know, that myth is fully debunked and, and we can take full advantage of a network of peers yes. and of mentors and advisors out there. Yes. Um, and yeah, along the way. Who want to talk, who want to help. They want to contribute, right? They're not kind of, oh, don't bug me. It's very, very inclusive. Yeah. And then, and then along the way you learn things like how to launch a business quickly and with as little money as possible, mm-hmm. um, how to raise money well, um, how to fail fast, right? These are things that you learn along the way that help you uh, to become better entrepreneurs ultimately. 
So you talk about being humble and I believe that in you. And so I want to talk about the failure that you were the most thankful for. Can you share with that with us? Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm thankful for all of them. Um, and sometimes for very different reasons and sometimes similar, but you know, one that I'm most thankful for is, uh, in the mid uh, 2000s, I was, uh, running a, a tech company, um, and we had an opportunity to sell it at a point in time for a fairly decent amount of money. And, uh, and it would have been a success. And, um, and then ultimately through, uh, a variety of, of circumstances and events, we ended up only selling it for the value of the IP. Uh. And so while it was an exit at the end of the day, it was a fail. And, uh, and you know, it taught me a couple of things. First, it absolutely taught me to own the chair, right? right. Like right. at the end of the day, the CEO is the CEO and, uh, and you got to own the chair. Nobody else can own the chair. Um, the second one is the power of having a strong network, not a big network, a strong network, right? Surrounding yourself with great people, um, is critical. Um, and then, uh, the third one is whoever you surround yourself with and however you're doing it. First of all, you have to be doing it for the right reasons. Yes. Right. And, and, and in order to do it for the right reasons, you have to be values aligned. Mm. Um, you know, and so, so that's what that failure taught me. Um, you, you, and, you think, and I won't forget it for sure. You think, do you think Keith, you can learn that without failure? Yeah, you know, to be fair, some people have innate wisdom and uh, they have uh, like an ability to be very self-aware of their strengths and weaknesses. And and some people are just naturally gifted in certain places. And so my comment to you, of course, is never say never. Mm-hmm. But you know what? For 99% of us, yeah, we kind of got to go through it. Yeah. Well, it's so, a rate of passage, right? That's for sure. Again, it's that difference between education and wisdom. Right. Yeah, right? that's right. It sure you know, is. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I yeah. love it. On that, on that note of wisdom education, um, I'm, uh, I'm always very interested in the, the path not taken versus the path that's taken. Is there any gem of a book that you would recommend that most people might not have heard about, but you say must know about? Uh, might not know about, but must know about. Wow, that's a fantastic question. I, I you know, um, I, I really appreciate all the accolades you're given for the great questions. I can't lay credit to ninety percent of them. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we got a great script writing team; they just do super stuff. But you are the, yeah. right; they are great questions, and yeah, maybe yeah. I just might massage them a bit in how I do it. So I'll take credit yeah, for some of it. <laughs> yeah, I think, and you should. So that's good. Yes, thank um, you. <laughs> you. You know, so so there's a couple of books. Uh, that I personally have gained a ton of value from. Uh, uh, Conscious Capitalism is one. Um, uh, there's another interesting book. And the reason I read it is when I was going through this journey of like how to change the world, but not be a nonprofit, yes. uh, but do it yes. in for profit. And so there's actually a book called Hole in the Gospel, uh, which is based on uh, world vision, which is uh, one of the most financially successful nonprofits. And so, so that's a, that's a fascinating journey. 
uh, that particular book and definitely will not be on the list of usual suspects. But then the, the last book that I would share cool. and a lot of founders will think it's irrelevant, but I'm here to tell you it's phenomenal. And it's a book that's called boards that deliver. And it's a book, uh, by a gentleman by the name of Ram Sharon, C H A R A N. And, uh, he's a Harvard prof and he's a consultant. And the book was originally written for people who are running public companies or large private for-profit corporations about how to run a formal board of directors. Right. But underpinning that story is the power of putting incredibly smart people around you in a formal way, understanding why you bring them, what roles they can play and how you can maximize the value of that. It's actually a timeless book, both across time as well as across stage of company. So Mm. insert board of advisors, insert informal board of advisors, insert close friends who are also peers, right? Right, right, right. And so Boards That Deliver is timeless and uh, well worth a read. Uh, Awesome, my friend. Um, You are a very interesting individual with a a very deep, deep insights. And uh, and I can't thank you enough for your time today. You've taken us on a journey that uh, when I took a look at the script, I didn't think we'd go into this depth. And uh, you definitely took us there with all the uh, with all the right deliverables. So you keep on happening, my friend. But before you go, what? How do people get in touch with you? How do they connect with you? LinkedIn, uh, springactivator.com. How's it all work? Yeah, fantastic. I'd uh, love for people to connect with me. Keep That's my question, going. by the way. The script writers don't like to get to lay claim to that question. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so Keith Hipple on Twitter. Uh, LinkedIn, absolutely. Keith at spring.is. Um, I am open to uh, hearing from everybody. And I always ask the same question first, which is, how can I help? How can Spring help? Mm, very yep. cool. And it's Ipple, I-P-P-E-L, Keith Ipple. Correct. You got Good it. man. Keep on happening. You're four hours ahead of me. I'm soon heading out for a beer. You're probably heading into lunch. So uh, you have a great day, my friend. And thank you again so much for your time. Yeah, I appreciate the time, Rivers. We'll talk soon. Thank you for joining us this week on the Startup Canada podcast, a show dedicated to unlocking the entrepreneurial potential of every entrepreneur with access to inspiring stories and tangible lessons to help you run your business. Want access to resources and support to grow your business? Visit startupcan.ca for the latest startup community news and upcoming events like our popular hashtag Startup Chats on Twitter every Wednesday and Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern. Until next week, I'm Rivers Corbett leaving you with a sneak peek of next week's episode. Hi, this is Eric Mercer, Director of Content at DX3, and you're listening to the Startup Canada Podcast with Rivers Corbett. Bricks and mortar. You walk through the door, you see the dress, you see the pot, you see uh, the books on the shelf. Um, what's the biggest challenge facing retailers this day, uh, today as it relates to technology and how are you guys with your conference trying to help address that? Sure. So I think that there's there's a couple different areas that we could dive into in terms of the challenges that face retailers. Um, the first area that I'd like to kind of look at is the challenge of the the buying process being taken out of the store and there there are uh-huh. two two major technologies that i'm seeing uh, being developed uh, and you know making lots of lots of headlines right now that that pose that that sort of i wouldn't call it threat but sort of change to the way that retail is conducted the first of those is voice um uh-huh. so as you've seen in the last year and then now we finally got them in canada uh, you know 
the uh, the Google Home or the Google Home Mini, as well as yes. the Amazon Echo or Echo Dot, whatever you have there. Essentially, this sort of smart home personal assistant that also enables shopping. Now, I'm not sure if you know this, but Google has partnered with Walmart in Canada. So if you go to shop um, using the Google Home, uh, you can be taken right to Walmart. And then obviously wow. the Amazon uh, Echo using Alexa is just connected directly to the Amazon shopping network. Sure, right? sure. Uh, you spend a lot of time trying to make sure that your product is positioned properly within a store so that a consumer will see it when he or she is walking down an aisle. But if you think about it now and where we're going with this is that if somebody uses their voice home assistant to shop, there is no aisle. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And so that that really changes the, the dynamic mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, brands relationships, with the retailers that they're um, they're selling through, as well as retailers and the relationships they have with their customers. So, um, so I think that's a really big challenge going forward. Um, and we're seeing some retailers kind of getting into the game earlier than earlier than others. Uh, and I think that that whole world is going to develop and and change drastically as as more and more people kind of get into this uh, connected voice activated lifestyle. Thank you.